At this point, I'm going to ask that Professor Abdul Karim takes the presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Minister. It's uh, indeed a pleasure and an honor to share with you today just a, a brief look at where we are currently in the COVID-19 epidemic. I'll talk about some of the trends and I'll talk about some of the next steps. And I will cover in this time, next slide, I will cover briefly an overview of the different aspects of the COVID-19 epidemic and then go on to talking about our response as this, uh, in terms of what we've done at a national level. We can get the next slide. Okay, we're just trying to get the slides up so you can follow me. Okay, next slide. So as we think about the coronavirus epidemic, we now have a clearer understanding of how it originated and what the early trajectory of the epidemic has been. Next slide. And that, when we, when we look at the earliest reports, we now know that the first cases probably occurred around November of last year. But the first reported case was in 19th of December last year from the Chinese city of Wuhan. It's thought that the initial epidemic, the cases emanated from the seafood market in Wuhan, where among the things that are considered to be the source of the virus are pangolins that were sold there. Since then, it is quite amazing that when you think about, we didn't even know this virus existed four months ago, that in the short four months that we've known about it, we have seen us go from a, a small outbreak in, uh, related to the seafood market to a situation today where we have just over 1.8 million people infected. And that gives us some indication of how rapidly this epidemic can grow. Next slide. So when we look at each country and the way in which the epidemic grows, we can see that once a country reaches about 100 cases, the epidemic grows at a rapid rate what we call an exponential curve. That exponential curve re reflects the high numbers of new infections that occur almost daily. And so what happens is that when this epidemic reaches that stage where you have this exponential curve, where the number of new cases is increasing very rapidly, that as they start developing clinical illness, they then need to come into medical care. And so the medical care systems get swamped and they get overwhelmed in dealing with the large numbers of cases. If you think about it like this, that a disease like HIV, from the time you actually acquire the infection to the date on which you will get symptoms is on average about seven years. In the coronavirus, from the date you get infected to the date on which you're likely to get your first symptoms is only seven days. So you are dealing with an epidemic that grows very rapidly and where the patients get clinical illness at a very rapid rate. Next slide. So when you look at the South African epidemic, this is a graph you're very familiar with, that day after day we count the cumulative number of cases and we present that. Next slide. But if you look at the trends, and this diagram is intended to give you a sense of the trend, 
What you see is that South Africa was on an upward trajectory. We were entering that exponential curve where the, the number of cases was increasing rapidly. And then on the 26th of March, it took a turn. On the 26th of March, instead of continuing a straight upward exponential curve, the epidemic took a turn. And what we began to see, a decline in the number of cases, and then we reached a stage of what we call a plateau, where we were just seeing a similar number of cases every day. Now, the 26th of March is significant because that was the date of the lockdown. And if we look at the number of new cases, next slide, it becomes a little bit clearer. So this is the moving average of the number of new cases in the dark line. The light line tells you the actual number of reported new cases each day. So when you look at this curve, what you can see is that we were on a simple trajectory like every other country, increasing rapidly day by day. And then suddenly on the 26th of March, it turned and went started going down again. And as it went down, it reached a point somewhere around 60, 70 cases a day, and it sort of hovered around there. Now, each day's numbers offer a lot of variability, and a lot of it is just background variability and noise. So it's better to look at it in terms of a moving average and to look at it in blocks of time so you get rid of some of the background noise and look at the average numbers. Next slide. So why is South Africa not on the expected COVID epidemic trajectory? Next slide. I've chosen to compare South Africa with the UK just because for the first two weeks or so, the number of new cases we had in South Africa was virtually the same as the number of cases that we saw in the UK. In other words, in the initial period, the new cases in each of our countries at that point after we reached 100 cases was very similar. Suddenly on the 26th of March, our line chooses not to continue the same upward trajectory that you see in the UK. That's not to say that our two countries are compatible, but certainly the initial trajectory of these two epidemics was similar. So what happened on the 26th of March was that we saw that as the numbers declined and became stable, the line sort of flattens out. And that's the difference between the two traje trajectories that you see. Next slide. Is that unique to the UK? Well, let's compare the South African line. And you can see again in the black, there's this little line that looks like a sort of uh, a knuckle where it goes up sharply and then takes a turn and then it flattens out. If you look at that line and you compare it to a range of different countries, and I've chosen here to compare it against the US, the UK, Italy, China, it gives you some sense that every one of these countries, when they get into that upward incline where we see that exponential line, it simply keeps going. Not a single country that we have seen has this kind of turn. I've also compared our epidemic curve to some of the most successful countries, countries that have been able to make quite a marked impact on the growth of the epidemic. And those in particular are South Korea and Japan and Singapore. 
So when you compare our epidemic, you can see that Singapore was able to make an early impact and to create a much more steady growth in their epidemic. Whereas if you look at South Africa, there's been no other country. So our epidemic trajectory is unique. No other country has reached that point and has been able to reach a stage where you get that kind of plateau. So why is South Africa different? Why is it that our new cases declined and have reached a plateau? Well, there's three possible reasons. The first, is it that we're just testing less? Is it that we're just not doing enough tests and that's why we're just seeing fewer cases? Is it that we actually are still doing a lot of tests, but we're doing them mainly in the private sector and not in the public sector. And so we're not getting a sense of what the epidemic is doing in our poorer communities that don't have medical aid. Or the third possible explanation is, is this reduction genuine? And what's the likelihood that it's genuine and that it's due to the interventions that we have implemented? Next slide. So in this slide, I'm showing you on the left-hand side, this is a graph of the number of tests that are being done in the public and private sectors combined. What do you see in that? You see that over the two weeks in which we saw the South African epidemic go into a sort of plateau phase, what we see is a continual increase in the number of tests that are being undertaken. So it's certainly that we didn't do much fewer tests. In fact, the overall numbers of tests have steadily increased in the last two weeks. <clears throat> so that eliminates that, or it, it reduces the likelihood that it's just simply a problem of lack of testing. Lack of testing may be a contributor, but it's certainly not a dominant one. So are we not testing the poorer communities? Well, if we look on the right-hand side, that's the, the daily number of tests that are being done by the NHLS. The NHLS is the public part of the laboratory service. And so all of our poorer communities without medical aid will be coming to the NHLS for their testing. And what do you see? Just at the time that you saw the plateau in the South African trajectory is the point at which the NHLS sharply increased the number of tests that it's doing. And we've seen that steady increase in the number of tests in the NHLS. So it's not because we're not testing in, in, the, in the townships, in the communities. It, it simply it has to be a third explanation. So it's unlikely due to a lack of testing, it's or decline in testing. It's unlikely to be due to the fact that we're not testing in the, uh, the communities, the poorer communities. So it, it's most likely to be due to some genuine effect. So let's look at that. And it, it's not something we can say definitively, but we can say that that's the likely situation. So our COVID-19 cases have declined over the two weeks while the NHLS test numbers have increased and while testing in people in communities without medical aid has increased. We still need to do more in terms of testing, but certainly what we have seen is an increase. Next slide. So let me talk now about community transmission. Remembering that the lockdown is essentially about reducing community transmission in South Africa. Next slide. So I'm going to explain the three waves that we see in the South African epidemic. The first wave is the blue line. So I want you to look 
at the top left-hand corner. The blue line shows you the cases that occur in travelers. So what is that epidemic about? That epidemic is about individuals from South Africa who traveled overseas. They went to Italy, they went to the UK, or wherever they went to. They acquired this uh, coronavirus infection. They came back to South Africa, and that's the first wave that we saw. Now, that wave is coming to an end, and it has to come to an end because we stopped international travel. So because we closed uh, international travel, those introductions of the virus. Now remember, outside of China, every other country has to have the virus come in from the outside, right? because this virus is not present in the countries. So it's the travelers that have to bring it in. So the travelers become that first wave, that blue wave. The travelers then interact with people, people at work, people at home, people they travel with, and importantly, when they go into a healthcare setting, they interact with doctors, nurses, and so on in the hospitals, in the doctor's rooms, in the clinics, and so you see nosocomial transmissions. So all of those constitute the red line. Now, we expect that the blue epidemic, the travelers... Can I just ask, can you ask the, can you ask the uh, cameras to focus on the slides on the slides so that the people out there can see the slides that's being explained. Um, yes, just take the nearest set and try and see if you can focus so that everyone can see the slides because it makes it easier to understand. Our apologies, we didn't realize that uh, we're getting left behind. My apologies. So I'm going to talk about the three waves of the South African epidemic. So I want you to look at the top left-hand diagram. So the first wave is the blue line. And the blue line is about infections that occurred in travelers. So these are people who traveled, came back to South Africa, they got infected during their travels, and then they become the main source of the infection in our country. They interact with people at home, at work, wherever it is, and in the course of those interactions, they spread the virus to those individuals. And so you get the second wave. And these people here in the second wave are those who have had some kind of interaction with uh, the travelers. Now, what we would have expected is that the blue wave and the red wave would lead to the green wave. And the green wave is about general community transmission. In other words, that the travelers and their contacts will spread the virus within our general community, and we will see this rapid liftoff, this, this takeoff on the number of infections that occur. And that's the line on the top right-hand side that we expected. We expected to see an exponential growth in our epidemic. But that didn't happen. Instead, and now I want you to look at the bottom left-hand corner, what we had was the epidemic, the blue, uh, in the epidemic, the first wave, the blue infections, the infections in travelers, and the red infections, which were those in their contacts and nosocomial contacts. But for some reason, those two groups did not lead 
to the establishment of a widespread community epidemic. We still see community transmissions, but they are at a low level. So the green line is at a low level. Sorry, we're getting some complaints of people who missed some of the slides. Could I just ask for just one second, if you can just go back quickly on a few of the slides, just so that they have a sense okay. that you can I come can go to the next just slide. Two seconds. Yeah. Next slide. So it's just making the point on this slide that every country, once they've reached about 100 infections, they have virtually a non-stoppable epidemic. They have this rapid exponential increase in the number of infections. Next slide. But the South African epidemic has been slightly different. Next slide. And what we're seeing instead is that in the South African epidemic, we were poised to get this rapid increase, and it increased up to the 26th of March. On the 26th of March, the day we instituted the lockdown, the epidemic curve turned. What happened is that the number of cases declined, and we went into a plateau. Next slide. And this becomes more clearer when you look at the number of new cases each day. In other words, don't look at it cumulatively. Just look at the absolute number of new cases. And if you look at the moving average, what you see, again, is that the number of new cases increasing rapidly until you get to the 26th of March, and then it turns. It turns, it heads back down, and it gets to a sort of plateau level, roughly around 60 to 70 infections every day. Next slide. And that we know that we now have a different trajectory. The epidemic has followed a different pattern in South Africa than we see anywhere else. And this diagram shows that when we compare the South African epidemic to the epidemic in the UK, the epidemic in the UK is the yellow dots and the epidemic in South Africa is the blue dots. When you look at the first two weeks or so of the two epidemics, they are very similar. They track with each other. And then on the 26th of March, our epidemic takes a turn, whereas the UK epidemic just continues its straight line upwards in the exponential curve. Next slide. So it's not unique that our epidemic is different from the UK. Our epidemic curve, the black line with the little knuckle that turns and flattens out, you can see it differs from all of the other epidemics. And I've chosen just to, for illustrative purposes to compare it with the U.S. epidemic, the Chinese epidemic, the Italian epidemic. So you get a sense of how our epidemic compares with most of the other epidemics. And even if you take the most successfully controlled epidemics, and that's Singapore and South Korea, for example, our epidemic has a completely unique picture to it in that South Korea had that sharp upward rise, and it took them a long time before they turned it and made it flat. And you can see in Singapore that they have a much slower increase in their epidemic. But they do not have this kind of knuckle where it was on its way up and then it turned. Next slide. So, the question is, why are these two lines different? Is it that we just decrease the amount of testing? And if you look at the left-hand diagram, what you see is that actually the testing has simply increased. Over the two weeks that our epidemic 
has sort of reached that kind of plateau, the testing was still continuing to go up. And if you look at the right-hand side, is it that we were just not testing in our poorer communities? And the answer to that, if you look at the graph, which shows you the daily number of tests being undertaken by the NHLS, you see a rapid rise in the two weeks. So in the two weeks in which we actually achieve this plateau, we have a rapid rise in the number of tests being done in our poorer communities. Now, we're still not testing enough. We've got to be doing a lot more testing, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. Next slide. So it looks like our trajectory is different. It's unique, and it looks like it is not simply due to a testing issue. The testing might be a contributor, but it's not a predominant one. So how much of community transmission is there? And that's where I was when we went back to the slide. So can I take, take me to the three waves? Okay, good. So I'm gonna explain this because this is central to understanding why our graph is different. So every country other than China, the epidemic the virus has to be introduced into the population by travelers. You have to go somewhere, get the virus, come back into your country, and when you come back, you get infected. When you do, you become the main source of the rest of the spread because the virus doesn't exist in our country until it's brought in by travelers. And most of these travelers have no idea that they picked this virus up. They are doing whatever they were, and this was at a time when the virus wasn't even widespread. And so when they came back to our country and they started becoming clinically ill, we began to see this epidemic. But the private sector did a pretty good job. Many of these travelers had medical aid, they went to the laboratories, they were tested, they were cared for in our hospitals, and we are now seeing the tail end of that epidemic. Just the last few of those travelers we are seeing at this time. And so the blue line is an epidemic that is on its way to an end because we stopped all international travel just about a month or so ago. The next wave in the epidemic is the contacts. So these are the people that the travelers mingle with. They mingle with them at work. They mingle with them at home. They mingle with them in the transport systems. And, and they also go when they get sick into healthcare services, into hospitals, into doctor's rooms, into clinics. And so you get the second wave of people who get the coronavirus infection. That's shown in the red line. It is the first, the blue line and the red line that combine to provide and seed the community with the virus so you get general community transmission. When it enters a community, it spreads like wildfire. And so you get the green line, that rapid increase in transmission in the community. And so you would expect to get the line in the top right-hand corner, right? So that's that exponential increase. Instead, what we had in South Africa as an explanation for why we have this odd trajectory in our epidemic, if you look at the bottom left-hand side, you see the blue epidemic, the, uh, the blue wave in the epidemic, you see the red wave in the epidemic, but the green, we just are not seeing that community level transmission at this time. So because we, the community transmission is there, we still see, we see cases, but it's not spreading like that wildfire that we had expected. 
And that's what's leading to this funny turn in the epidemic and the shape of our curve, which is quite different. Next slide. So, why did South Africa not follow the expected epidemic curve? Well, I explained to you that the first and second waves, the blue and the red wave, didn't really bridge and lead to widespread general community transmission. If it did, we would have been on that rapid upward uh, trajectory. So we simply did not see that exponential increase. And if we look at the daily numbers of cases, if you look at the two weeks prior to the lockdown, the average numbers, number of cases that we were seeing per day was 65. If you look at the number of cases we were seeing on average in the two weeks after the lockdown, it's 72 cases. So if you look at one of the most important measures in an epidemic, is called the reproductive rate of infection, shown as R0. R0 basically means each infected person, how many other people are they infecting? So if each infected person is infecting one other person, the epidemic remains at a pretty static level. If one infected person is infecting more than one other person, the epidemic grows. If one infected person is infecting less than one other person, the epidemic goes into a decline. Right? So R0 around 1 is our key measure. How much higher or lower than 1, or how much is it around 1? When we look at our situation, roughly, because of the infectiousness period, we can say that each infected person, on average, is leading to about one new infection. And so that's why we see this line. We're not seeing a situation where one infected person leads to many. Why is that the case? Well, that was exactly the purpose of all our interventions. That's exactly the reason why we instituted all these things. Social distancing, hand washing. Uh, it's also the main reason we instituted uh, interventions that led to a situation where people were not interacting with others. So when you think of a lockdown, essentially what you're talking about is that each infected person becomes a dead end. They don't transmit it to others because they're not interacting with others. So we know from that that we, we simply are not seeing this growth in the epidemic we expected. And that right now we're not even seeing much evidence of clinical disease. We're not seeing large national increases in the amount of respiratory distress. In short, if community transmission is low, cases decline. If community transmission is increasing, then cases will increase and the exponential curve will start again. And community transmission is the central feature of what we're trying to control and stem. Next slide. Where are we concerned? What are we concerned about in community transmissions? Well, our three biggest concerns are in the three high-density hubs, where we have a lot of infections and where the potential for spread is high. It's high because we have so many people with the virus and we have so many communities where it could be, it could be seeded and where it could spread. So our big concerns 
uh, around the greater Johannesburg area, the greater Cape Town area, and the greater Itikwini area. Those are the three hubs. If we start seeing community transmissions at a significant level, those three hubs are going to be the most likely places where it will start. Next slide. So let me end off this section on the epidemic by talking about some future scenarios. What are we going to see? So what I've told you so far is about the history. I told you about how the epidemic occurred. I told you about where the epidemic is now. Now let me tell you about some thoughts about where the epidemic may be going. So what's next? If you look at the top left-hand diagram, again, I've shown you our little funny line that doesn't match anybody else's line. So what's going to happen next? What we would hope for is in the dotted line that the number of new cases will steadily decline and it will disappear, and that's the end of the story. I'm sorry to tell you that that's very unlikely. The more likely scenario is on the top right-hand corner, and that is that what we've managed to do is to stem community transmission. But once we end the lockdown, and we're going to have to end it at some point, once we end it, because about 55 million people odd are vulnerable to this virus. Remember, this is a completely new virus. No one in the world has encountered this virus before. This is a completely new virus. We have no immunity. We have no vaccine. We have no treatment. We have no immunity. So that means we're all at risk. It doesn't matter whether you're white, black, young, old, it doesn't matter. You're at risk because you have no protective immunity. And that's why, as soon as the opportunity arises for this virus to spread, we are likely to see the exponential curve again. We looked at, and people have looked at other epidemics. So colleagues in India have modeled the Indian epidemic, and they are also currently in a 21-day lockdown. And basically what they show is that the epidemic is starting to go up, you institute a lockdown, and basically at the end of the lockdown, the epidemic is likely to come back. Then you can look at Wuhan, where they institute a very long uh, lockdown, right? Something like, what, 50, 60 days of lockdown. And they then waited for no local transmissions for seven days before they lifted the lockdown. Well, we, it's left to be seen. Are we going to see another small epidemic in Wuhan? As soon as travelers start coming into Wuhan, reintroducing the virus, to what extent is the community doesn't have immunity and we're likely to see new epidemics? We're going to watch that very carefully. Next slide. So I have to tell you that as much as we have succeeded in stemming the flow of this virus in our communities, in keeping community transmission at a reasonably low level, and that is a success that no one else has achieved, I have to tell you a difficult truth. Can South Africa escape the worst of this epidemic? Is the exponential spread avoidable? The answer, sadly, is that that's very, very unlikely. Put simply, no. We cannot escape this epidemic. Not unless South Africa has some special protective factor 
let's call it a mojo. We have some mojo that protects us that's not present anywhere else in the world. Our population is at high risk because all of us have no immunity against this virus. We've never encountered it before. So as soon as we end the lockdown, we will have that high risk. And so that's the issue we're grappling with. So why is it that it's so inevitable? Well, there are several reasons. One is that this virus, when you acquire the virus, let's say you get infected with a virus today, we expect that for the first three or so days in the incubation period, you will not transmit this virus. But thereafter, from day four, day five, up to the first seven to ten days, you are now infectious. You are infectious before you have symptoms. So you don't even know you have this virus, and you are in a position to transmit it. How do you fight something that you don't even know you have? And that's been our one challenge. Once you show symptoms, you are also infectious. And so you are infectious for another two weeks or so. So you have this long period of infectiousness that in, in during which you're then spreading it around. And we know that normally when people are interacting with each other, this virus can spread really fast. In that on average, an infected person will infect about two to three other people. So what does that mean if I say two to three other people? Think about it like this. If 10,000 people have the virus today, Within a matter of three, four, five days, that 10,000 people will re, uh, become a number like 30,000. And then again, another four, five days, and you're now at 90,000. Because each person is infecting two to three others, this epidemic within weeks can grow very rapidly. And we see that in that exponential curve. So what we have seen is a slight difference in our curve. And the government interventions have slowed the viral spread. The curve has been impacted, and we have now gained time. Next slide. So why is the delay important? Why is it to, that we should delay this viral epidemic? Why don't we just get it and be done with it? Because if we allow it to grow unchecked, we will see what you see in New York. You will see thousands of people trying to get into a hospital for care, and we simply do not have enough ICU beds or ventilators or medical care or any of that. We simply cannot care, we cannot provide care to so many people at one time. And so that's the challenge we're going to face. So we have time to flatten the curve, and South Africa has a unique component to its response. And that's quite important that when you talk about how do you tackle this virus, Every other country has simply had to wait. They saw these cases coming into the hospital, and that's how they recognized they had an epidemic. In South Africa, we've chosen to go a different route. We've chosen to be proactive. We've chosen to go out there and do active case finding. We're not going to wait till they come to the hospital sick. We're going to go into the community. We're going to find them before they get to a hospital. And only South Africa has done that, because every other country, before they knew it, the epidemic was on top of them. Because we've had time, we now have, as you heard from the Minister of Health, we have over 28,000 community health care workers going house to house, 
in our most vulnerable communities, screening them and referring them for testing so that we can find the new cases. This time is also an opportunity to give us an opportunity to find new, quicker, simpler diagnostics so that we're not dependent on this more uh, difficult and expensive and uh, time-consuming test that we're currently doing of PCR. It's also an opportunity to get new treatments, new vaccines, and all of this needs time. Now, we are unlikely to get a treatment or a vaccine within the next few months. Those things take, you know, years. Um, in our case, we hope that maybe we'll get it in a year, maybe 18 months. Our epidemic should be over by then. But they're important. They're an opportunity that if, it, if there is new data emerging, that hopefully maybe a new treatment becomes available. And importantly, it gives us the time to prepare, prepare for the medical needs to come. Next slide. So now I'm going to talk about the response. What I've talked about up to now is the epidemic. Now let me talk about the South African response. Next slide. So, so far, we have implemented the first four stages of our response. The first stage was preparation, where we set up the laboratories and we started doing the testing at the NICD. And we started doing community education and so on. The second phase, when we declared the state of disaster, where we introduced social distancing, where we introduced hand washing, we closed the schools, we controlled the number of people who can attend a gathering, and importantly, we closed the borders so that we didn't have international travel. Then we went to stage three, which was now our intensive phase, where we wanted to intensify the curtailment of human interactions. So every person who's infected becomes a dead end. They don't pass it on to anyone else because they're not interacting with them. And then we went to stage four. Stage four is our surveillance program and active case finding with our community health workers door to door. Next slide. And this gives you some idea of how we have introduced each of those four stages of our response. So what about stage five? What's next? Next slide. Well, what do we do this week? This week, we need to ensure that all of us follow the lockdown rules and that we monitor community transmission. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to monitor the average daily number of cases that are occurring through the normal passive testing that people get sick and they come in. And we're going to monitor our active case finding in our communities by looking at positivity among those who are screened. So when we look at the epidemic, in the, in the week before we declared the state of disaster, we were having only two cases per day on average. So there's no question we acted very early in this response. Almost no other country was in a position to act this early in the response because by the time the cases started arriving, it just overtook them. In the first week after the state of disaster, we had about 21 cases per day on average. In the next week, the second week in the state of disaster, we had a rapid increase, right? You saw that, that up to 110 cases a day on average. Then we instituted the lockdown, and that number comes down. We're now talking about 76 cases per day on average in the first week after the lockdown. 
And then, in the second week after the lockdown, we're now down to 67 cases per day. Now, you have to know that when there's a case today, that case reflects an infection from two weeks ago. From the time you get infected, you have a period in which you are in incubation. That takes about seven to ten days. Then you have to go to a doctor when you get symptoms, or a clinic or a hospital. Then you have to do a laboratory test. And then eventually when we get the answer, we call you a case. So we're calling you a case today. You actually got infected two weeks ago. So when I talk about the average daily number of tests, in the two weeks after the lockdown, they actually represent infections that occurred two weeks earlier. In other words, they occurred, the infections themselves occurred before the lockdown. Next slide. So this coming week is critical. We need to know what the average number of cases is going to be. Why? Because we want to know what the community transmission levels are. Because we want to use that to guide us on what next steps we should follow and how we should manage the lockdown. So by the 18th of April, we will know if community transmission and whether our interpretation that community transmission has been kept low, whether that's accurate. And if we look at the 67 cases per day on average, the 95% confidence interval is 45 to 89. In other words, the true number of cases is between 45 and 89. So we are 95% confidence that the, the, the number of cases per day, even though we're seeing 67, there's some variability, and that variability lies between 45 and 89. So using that as an objective criterion, now we have an objective way based on the R naught. In other words, how many people is an infected person spreading it to? If we base it on that, then we have a set of criteria. If the average number of daily cases, and we have to exclude active screening because that's, a, that's not comparing apples and apples, but if we look at just the passive cases between the 10th and the 16th of April, and if we see 90 or more cases on average between the 10th and 16th of April, then we need to continue the lockdown. And the reason, put very simply, is that the average number of cases per day is going up. So the R naught is going above one. And we don't want that. We want to keep R naught at one or lower. If we see number of cases between 45 and 89, then we are in the same region as 67, right? Within the margin of error. And there we want to use our community prevalence. What is the active case finding telling us? And if that active case finding has a, has a, screening to, a positivity to screening ratio that is above one in a thousand, then we continue the lockdown. If it's below one in a thousand, then we can ease the lockdown. Similarly, if the absolute number of cases is 44 or lower, we can ease the lockdown because it tells us R naught is less than one. So you can see that using epidemiological criteria, we create a set of a clear approach as to how to deal with the lockdown. Now you must expect that there'll be large daily variations, right? Because, you know, just the way the timing of the lab tests and so on, so you will see that. And you will see some large numbers, some small numbers. Don't let that bother you. 
you have to look at it over a period of time. And so that's why we look at a whole week at a time, and we compare weeks with weeks so that we're comparing apples with apples. We know that if we end the lockdown and we end it abruptly, we may run the risk of undoing all of the effort and the benefit we've achieved. Because then we'll be putting high-risk and low-risk people together, traveling in the same buses, taxis, trains. We have to do something about that. We have to avoid that situation. And so we need to think about and plan for a systematic easing of the lockdown, starting with transport hubs and then working our way down from the lowest risk to the highest risk. Next slide. Next slide. Okay, so once we have some idea and we now have a clearer sense of what's guiding whether we re uh, extend the lockdown, whether we end the lockdown, how we end the lockdown, I hope I've given you a better understanding of that using epidemiological criteria. So what's next? Well, what we have to do is we have to get on with the next four stages of our response. So I talked to you about the first four stages. Now I'm going to talk to you about the next four stages. Because that way you have some idea of where we are in our response. This is not a response we plan by the day. This is a response where we've looked at the totality of what we need to do. And now you can figure out where we are in that sequence. So what's next? Stage five is hotspots. We need to find out where the clusters of cases are occurring. We need to go in there. We need to slow it down. I'm concerned that things, for example, gatherings like funerals may lead to the spread of the virus. We've got to be very careful so that every hotspot that emerges, we can deal with it. Stage six is about medical care. We've already started stage six. We are now in about week four, week five of our planning for stage six. So stage six is what we anticipate is we need to be ready for when those patients come. What does that mean? We need to ensure that we have the capacity, that we have the field hospitals for the triage. And I've shown you a picture here. You know, in New York, Central Park was full of these field hospitals. Because what you want is you don't want people who don't need to go to hospital to go there. Hospitals get overwhelmed. So what we need, when somebody is sick, you go to a field hospital, a triage. In the triage, they then make a decision. Do you need to go to hospital? Because if you need to go to hospital, we've got to have ICU capability. We're going to be ready to ventilate you. But if you're mild, if you can be dealt with there in the field hospital, we keep you. So we, we hold the pressure off the main hospitals which are treating the seriously ill patients because within a matter of days, they will have thousands arriving. Stage seven is we have to deal with the challenges of bereavement. It's hard to say this. I know you don't want to hear this. But we have to be ready. We have to prepare now so that we can deal with the mental health consequences, we can deal with the social consequences that are going to see us go through a difficult period. Then stage eight, which is the ongoing vigilance. Next slide. I'll talk about stage eight in terms of what we need to do in order to be vigilant. So stage eight is about ensuring that we're keeping one step ahead of the virus. I'm showing you this graph 
So you get some idea of how we are implementing our eight stages so that you have a sense of where we are and where we're going. And you have some idea of how we're putting in all the bits and pieces in our eight stages of our response. Next slide. One of those uh, stages that we've got to ensure that we're putting enough effort into, oops, next slide. Next slide. Is I want to talk to you now about stopping the small flames to reduce the risk of a raging fire. Next slide. So what we see is that when you're dealing with a virus like this, you get small flames. And I've used this cartoon of a forest. So you can see that within this forest, there's a fire here, there's a fire there. If you do not have people on the ground who can see these fires, who are looking for fires, we won't even know they're there. So we have to do that. And putting our community health workers onto the ground looking for the fires. Because within a matter of peer, as soon as we can see a fire, we can then respond to the fire. And those teams, those intervention teams that go with the hotspot identification, help us go in there and douse these little flames. Because if we get there too late, next slide, what we'll see is that actually now we're trying to put out raging fires. And it's much more difficult to put out raging fires than it is to put out a small flame. So we're going to focus on the little flames so that it never gets to raging fires. We're not sure if we're going to succeed. That's our goal. So stage eight. Stage eight is about vigilance. Here, we're going to try and stay one step ahead of viral spread. This is a tall order. It's a really difficult thing to do because this virus spreads so fast. We are not going to wait for patients to pitch up at hospitals to act. We're going to do that now, proactively. What are we doing? We have three components to the surveillance. I've already talked about the ongoing community health care worker program. The second is we need to institute a surveillance program where 5% of staff from the emergency rooms, ICUs, respiratory units are part of a surveillance program once a month. Because they are the first point of contact in the healthcare system, they are they're like a canary in the coal mine. It tells us what's going on. It gives us a clue about where we are. We don't want to fight an enemy we can't see. We have to know where we are all the time. And so that brings me to the third component of our surveillance, that once a month we're going to have a national surveillance day. And the national surveillance day, we will select a small number of schools, mines, prisons, and big companies. We're going to aim to get about a 5% sample from these selected institutions, and we're going to do that once a month. We'll increase the number and the time in which we do it. We might go to fortnightly or whatever we need based on what we see. We don't need to do that fortnightly just yet because community transmission is under control for now. But as it goes up, we'll want to know it more quickly. And so that will tell us what we're going to do. And we can do that initially right now with self-taken swabs. It's very easy to take a swab. And we hope that we'll switch to finger pricks once we have a rapid antigen test or some way in which we could identify those 
in a much more simpler way than having to take a swab. Next slide. So let me uh, touch now briefly before I end off. What are, what are some of the major concerns in state six? Because I could, I could go on at length about each of the stages, but I just want to give you a flavor of the challenges we face in stage six. So stage six is our medical care response. Remember, we've started already working on this. There are whole teams of people working on it. We saw from New York that blacks and Hispanics had twice the death rate compared to whites. And what we understand from that is that fundamentally it's about access to health care. We simply cannot allow that to continue in South Africa. We've got to make sure that everyone has access to care when they need it. So we're going to need an efficient ambulance system. We're going to need to ensure we have the health care ready to be provided. And we're particularly concerned that we have HIV-positive patients. We have about two, two and a half million HIV-positive patients not on antiretroviral treatment. And we estimate roughly that there's about half a million of them who have a low CD4 count. They, have, they are immunocompromised. And so those individuals, plus patients who have TB, they may have a much more severe cause of COVID. So we're going to need to make sure that we are preparing for a possible additional burden from those individuals. Plus, on top of everything else, we're going to have our COVID epidemic at the same time as our annual flu epidemic. I mean, every year we have our flu in the winter. We all know that. We get our headaches, our sneezing, and our sore throats. And now we're going to have to deal with it. I won't know whether you've got flu or whether you've got COVID. So we're going to have to deal with that burden in addition. But when I have to say all of this, one of the big issues we're going to have to think about is how do we protect the elderly? In particular, those above 70. Preferably those above 60 or 65 because mortality is still higher in that group. But above 70, we're really concerned. We need to think about whether it's going to be possible to have some kind of partial lockdown. And it can be a voluntary partial lockdown until the end of September or so when we think the most of the wave of this epidemic will be over. I don't know if it's going to be over on the end of September. I'm not a crystal ball gazer, but I've just provided that as a target for now. That if we can offer something to protect our elderly, right, and especially those with other conditions like diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, we know that those three were the main risk factors in the U.S., and in China. Those individuals, can we provide them with protected uh, self-quarantine and self-isolation? So that what it means is that our children will go to school and they're playing school. When they go home, they can't play with granny. They cannot play with grandpa because they will pose a risk to transmit the virus to their grandparents. We're going to have to protect our elderly in this period. We're going to have to build the field hospitals for the triage, especially in our big cities. And all of that's already well ahead in planning and so on. Those sites have been identified. And we need to get the staff ready. They need to know that we are going to head to this exponential curve. We need to have our makeshift <coughs> ICUs, our ventilators, our PPE. All of them major challenges because the whole world is trying to get all these things at the same time. So let me end off. Next slide would making some concluding remarks about where we are. So I've given you a sense in the course of this presentation
about some key components of this epidemic and its response. First, I've told you that South Africa has a unique epidemic trajectory, that our current trajectory was a rapid increase, and because we intervened, and we intervened at an opportune time, we curtailed community transmission. Community transmission is continuing, but at a much lower level than we anticipated. I also gave you the bad news, the difficult truth, that we probably can't escape the exponential part of this epidemic. And that the lockdown has bought us some time. It has given us that time, that opportunity to become more proactive. And it's probably also dampened, it's flattened the curve. So when we see the peak, we won't see it in the same way as if we didn't have the lockdown and the other interventions we implemented. As we think about the lockdown and the timing of when it would come to an end, and the, that we can't end it abruptly. We've got to do it in a very systematic way. And we need to think about in the next few weeks as our focus shifts to stage five of hotspot identification. In other words, finding the flames, fighting the flames before they become fires. To stage six, when we start preparing with all our medical uh, care response, and then we move to stage eight, where we introduce our surveillance activities. Next slide. I want to end by just thanking many people. Minister Mkhizi and I have spent quite a lot of time thinking through these issues, and many people contributed and guiding us and giving us information that made all of this possible. On that note, I'd like to thank you, and I'd like to hand over back to Minister.